1: welcome to the nine finger chronicles podcast brought to you by exodus trail cameras the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation and now
0: here's your nine fingered host dan johnson happy monday everybody and welcome back to the podcast hopefully everybody had a great weekend I tell you, here in Iowa, it was absolutely gorgeous. Um, I got a lot of work done in my garden. Uh, Me and the kids played outside. And then on Sunday, I took my kids on a, I don't want to call it a death march because it didn't end in death, but the goal was actually to make them so tired that they would sleep good. Um, They'd take a nap and then sleep good uh, Sunday night. And it worked. So uh, I might have to take the kids on a couple more of those hikes uh, in the future just to wear them out. And that's the that was literally the only goal. And it was fun. At the same time, we got to enjoy nature, uh, played with some bugs and some leaves and pointed some cool stuff out to them. But uh, got a lot accomplished this weekend, you know, and the biggest goal was to hang with the family. I'm, I'll tell you what. I am looking forward to two things up here in the next two months. One is Turkey hunting. And number two is morel mushrooms. Uh, last year I got very lucky and, uh, I was actually going to, uh, check a trail camera and I ran into a huge mess of them. And, uh, if you've never had morel mushrooms, you're missing out. They're absolutely delicious. And, uh, Somebody needs to send me a recipe for mushrooms that aren't just battered and deep fried, right? I would love to try something else, whether, you know, you put them on a burger or, uh, I don't know, something other than just your good old-fashioned, you know, egg whites, crackers, and deep fat fry them. So somebody send me a, a really good recipe so I can try it out. I'll give you a shout out on the show if it's good, and if it's uh, a bad recipe, I'll shout you out too and tell you it was dog crap. That's a joke, but but I tell you what, today I am I'm pretty excited uh, to share this podcast because I recently got on the phone with the head bone collector himself, Michael Waddell, and we talked about just about everything man this is one of the this is one of the great uh, bs sessions that i've uh, i've done in the recent future and man we talked about the hunting industry we talked about you know how he got into the hunting industry we talked about him growing up and uh, i'm not going to say uh, yeah he, i guess you could say he was poor um growing up and how he got into hunting um, some of the people who influenced him to get into hunting uh, and not the industry but just to be an overall hunter um, we talked a little bit of we about politics and um, you know then we kind of looped all the way back around and talked about family again and um, just a really good conversation between two hunters is the way I like to look at it and uh, I enjoyed it and I hope hopefully you guys enjoy it too. Um, and I'm just going to let Michael do most of the talking and you'll find out a lot about him in the, in the podcast. But before we get into that, uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, a new partner that has come on the podcast and that is Ozonics. Now, you guys have heard me talk about Ozonics uh, in several other podcasts before uh some of my blogs that i've done uh even on the uh wired to hunt podcast but if you don't know what in ozonics is you really need to go do your research on it and what it is is it is uh, a little unit you take into the tree with you and it emits o3 which is ozone and uh, long story short of what ozone does is it destroys bacteria that creates odor so you put it above your head and it blows down, you know, it goes with the wind. And I have been using this Ozonics unit, uh, since, or this product, I should say, since it basically first came out back when it was the size of a DVD player or VHS. And it weighed probably about 10 pounds. You had to take it in, into the tree with you and it was big and bulky. A lot's changed since then. And, uh, I was a firm believer in the technology the first couple of times I've used it. I was a skeptic at first, just like a lot of people are. Um, And I had a guy, his name's Craig Intervold. He's been on the podcast a couple of times now. And um, he's basically like, to the group of guys that I was hanging out with at the time, hey, you guys got to try this. You got to try this. We're like, yeah, whatever, whatever. You know, this is a joke. This is a, a gimmick, whatever. And then you take it in the tree with you after he finally talked us into it and you just kind of see the results and you're like, nah, are you kidding me? And back when they, their motto used to be, you know, what's your aha moment? And that aha moment is ozone works. So it's one of those products that I, it's in my pack in the tree with me every hunt now. And it's one of those things that you guys really need to try um you know try before y- you're totally write it off so the first thing that you need to do is go to ozonicshunting.com and just read up on all the technology that comes with this product read about how it works read about O3 and ozone and um you know check out their their product skus and their product lineup as well and uh, see if it's something for you now Back to the giveaway here. We're going to be doing a giveaway of an HR 200 uh, on the podcast today. And here's how you win. The first thing you do is go to the Nine Finger Chronicles Facebook page, right? Find the post that mentions this podcast we're doing with Michael Waddell. Share it on your own Facebook page. Then go to Ozonics Facebook page. Like it and comment nine fingers sent me and uh, by doing that you will be entered to win uh, this uh, HR 200 and uh, I will be picking a winner later this week uh, or first thing uh, the following week once everybody's had a chance to uh, you know share and do you know get entered and uh, I'll pick a winner and uh, that's a good way to start off the uh, you know a partnership with uh, this company hopefully you guys are excited I know I'm excited but uh, enough of all the talk let's get into today's BS session podcast with Mr. Michael Waddell Mr. Michael Waddell how you doing today doing great Dan how about you buddy I can't complain I don't know if uh, you're getting the rain down there like we've had the past couple weeks up here in Iowa but uh, it's wet
1: it is actually uh, raining now, and hopefully uh, hopefully, there's not any bad news by the time this is aired, because we, we're right now in a big-time tornado watch here in Georgia. We've been getting a lot of spring sales coming through here, thunderstorms, and the last couple days has been really bad. We got a, a tornado has been hitting here and there, and so it looks like it's going to be a doozy this year when it comes to tornadoes,
0: so we'll right. see, I guess. I tell you what, um, I lived in Alabama for about a year i lived in georgia for a little bit um and i felt like every and and in the areas that i lived nobody had basements right so right a a tornado warning would come through about once or twice a week in the summertime and in the spring and it's just all right get in the bathtub or hiding the in the closet in the center of the house
1: (laughs) that's right everybody's getting in the bath in the bathtubs and closets It's, it's crazy and uh Luckily, where I'm at, I got a basement, and uh, but you're right, there's a lot of houses that don't have them, and I tell you what, man, it, it's funny, you never think of those tornadoes much, but they get pretty spooky, man, when they come through. Amen. Amen. I always tell my kids, they're just as afraid of you as you are them, you know, but it doesn't work, you know, <laughs> like, like, you know, you tell them about the black bear, it don't work as good on, on the tornadoes.
0: <laughs> oh, man, that's funny. Um, so, man... I just want to BS with you a little bit today, but before we get into all that, um, how was your 2016 hunting season?
1: It was actually really good, Dan, and it was so much different than a uh, years before. And um, being that this past summer, my wife and I had a, uh, we had a, a new baby boy, and he came premature in July. And so going into the fall, I knew it was gonna be chaotic. Obviously there was a lot of prayers, it was a lot of concern about our little boy. Um, he he'd come into the world two pounds, nine ounces. So I immediately made a commitment that look I'm not I'm not gonna hit the road as hard as I have in the past. And as addicting as I am to hunting, or addicted as I am to it, it it's a career, it's a pastime, it's a it's pretty much my life and, and I'm pretty much sometimes over dedicated to it because I love it so much. and been blessed to work, you know, in the hunting industry, but I knew this year it was going to be different. I need to stay at home more to be here just for her and, and my boy and all my kids. And so I decided to stay around the house, but the flip side of that, it, man, it turned into probably the best season I ever had here in the South because I was home, but that still didn't mean I couldn't slide out every once in a while in the morning or an afternoon to go hunt in Georgia. It gave me a lot more time to kind of, when I had some extra time to myself to go, kind of hone in on some some good Georgia hunting and some deer that are typically really tough to hunt. They still were, but I was here. I had a lot of time to dedicate to it. So long story short, I ended up killing the two best deer I ever shot in Georgia with my bow and arrow, both both well and the Pope and Young, one that's probably close to 150. And so for me, it was kind of cool because I got a chance to spend a lot of time with my family, but I also got a chance to hunt a state that I normally wouldn't have put this much time into it, Simply because, to be honest, you're, I was spoiled. I mean, you're spoiled when you get the to other to Kansas, Illinois, you know, Iowa, Indiana, and, and concentrate on spending your, you know, five to seven days at a time in those states. But instead, I spent months in Georgia and it gave me a chance to kind of hone in on two good ones.
0: So the first question that comes to mind when you say that is, you know, you mentioned being spoiled going to some of these other states. Did you have to rethink your strategy? you know, coming back home and hunting, uh, you know, a Southern state that, you know, typically people say, Hey, uh, name a big buck state. No, one's going to say Georgia, right? No, that's correct. It, it it did.
1: And, and, and I'll be the first to say, I think 90% of the hunting personalities are the people who get a chance to do television shows. If they're successful and have the sponsors and, and have the opportunity to do what we do, we're spoiled, let's face it. I mean, I know everybody on Facebook, you know, you'll see a lot of hate, and, we'll, you know, hey, you guys get to do this and that, and a lot of it is true. Now, some people just hate the fact that they just ain't got no joy in their life. But when it gets <laughs> down to it, I mean, I, I know I'm a blessed man. I grew, up, I grew up in Georgia, you know, hunting and fishing. And so with that said, I, I really appreciated the first chance I had a chance to hunt northeast Montana or hunt Iowa. You know, or hunt Illinois. It's it's night and day difference. It doesn't mean that it's easy. It just means that you know you're hunting a resource that can yield unbelievable results, not only in deer activity, but just in the size of the deer. And so, it's definitely easy to get spoiled when you get a chance to do that job. However, it is part of the adventure. It is documenting these different areas in different states, and we've always took a lot of pride in kind of documented as is this adventure tells itself right. we don't have to be actors we don't have to pretend something happens if it's a state that we can legally bake corn or put out big and jade, then we show the people who watch it we're not trying to hide anything we just kind of represent that we're blessed guys who get a chance to hunt some great areas here's what it is and it's almost like a bunch of high school kids other than the fact that we're 43 with families you know <laughs> so i mean when it gets down to it so so no doubt i did have to restrain my strategy number one Um, I had to not be selfish, uh, because, you know, from the spoils standpoint of getting a chance to hunt these other great resources in different states, um, I had to know that, you know, look, I don't need to be on these trips, even though I want to be, you know, Nick and T-Bone can go on those hunts and do those television shows. I won't stay here. And so I was not as part of many, as many TV shows in the field hunting this year, um, but those shows I did in Georgia. Now I did get the chance to go some stuff. I like I drew a Nevada public ground elk tag. I mean I, I did that. I talked to my wife. She's like, "Look, you got to go on that. You know, you, you've been trying to get this tag for 15 years. You finally got it. You need to go hunt." And I went out there early September. Got me a really nice bull, like 376. He was a really super cool bull. Um, and and I'm sorry, it was three three sixty seven. I got it backwards, but that's what a son is supposed to do. You can t- you can stretch a little bit, but but um. But anyway, when it gets down to it, I, I pulled off the road. And so yeah, I had to rethink really, really that part of it as far as the way I hunt. Um, it was a different vibe because I was getting a chance to kind of put out a lot of trail cameras. You know, I got the wireless trail cameras so I could kind of monitor what was going on. So I was around here. So it was easy for me to kind of route, you know, get up and hunt when I knew it felt like the percentages were in my favor based on right. the amount of activity I was seeing on the cameras or, or sign or the time of year when the weather was right. So it was really cool to be here and let the hunt kind of come to me rather than me kind of run to the hunt um, because traveling so many times, even when you go to good spots, you have no control over it. If you decide to hunt, you know, November 1st through the 7th in Illinois, well, if you get up there and if the sun season will be warm, then you might've been better off to go the week before and the week after. So you never know. So this gave me an opportunity to be here that they might be four or five, six days. I didn't even go to the woods. You know, I'm just sitting here monitoring my cameras, and then all of a sudden the weather front's coming in. I know it, and I'll be able to tell my wife, look, for the next two or three days I'm going to hunt hard. And and so she'd you know, like, go ahead. So it was definitely a rethought process. It was more uh, deliberate, consistent, rather than traveling somewhere, hunting as hard as a white man can hunt for seven days, and then going home.
0: Uh, right. You know,
1: it, it, and, and so it was different in that regard. And Plus the fact that the southern deer just – have so much bedding so much browse and food that sometimes it's really hard to funnel them through or, or to make them you know do certain things as you know because you've you hunted and lived in Georgia and Alabama so you know how that is
0: yep so back to the family right off the bat how is your boy doing
1: he is doing excellent he's in there in the living room right now and uh little thunderstorms coming through here so he was out there listening to that lightning crack i I, I was getting used to when he's getting ready to go shoot his first Turkey, maybe in a couple of years. So yeah, he's doing good. He's, he's now, uh, he's about the size of a big old long beard gobbler. Now he's over 20 pounds and he's nice. coming on. He's rolling over. He's will be nine months here in a couple of days. And, uh, he's still behind on a few areas, but overall, Dan, he is just doing so good. He's, it's been such a blessing, man. There were so many prayers out there for that little boy. And, uh, it's just, it was, it's actually just a kind of a cool opportunity for me to be at this point in my life and career and to have this little, little youngin right here. And I have, I love kids. I love all my kids. This makes my fifth kid. So obviously we got our hands full, but
0: right. you know,
1: I think the good, good Lord said, He said Hey, when you, a kid is like having another arrow in your quiver. And that's exactly right. what I
0: feel like. Good. Now, I know I've talked to uh, some of the other guys in the industry and, you know, some of these guys are on the road for 300 days out of the entire year. You know, that's that's an aggressive schedule. But do you see yourself now? You know, you've been in the industry a long time. Do you see yourself kind of weaning yourself off these these big yearly schedules or and, you know, staying home or are you going to ramp it back up once, uh, you know, junior's all grown up?
1: I, I definitely find myself now, um, first of all, I think the number one thing is, I mean, when, when you hear those schedules like that, th- there's no way, I mean, obviously, you, I think it's easy in this industry to kind of find an excuse to stay gone more. Number one is because passionately you love what you do. I mean, who right. who... Who loves to hunt is not going to say no to a turkey hunt. Who's not going to say when you have the opportunity, I can go to Iowa and hunt a deer, or I'm going to go to Oregon to chase an elk, and I've never been there. And then you got an opportunity maybe to go to Alaska to hunt caribou, or whatever. So, what I found that you you can you can find a way to make it seem legit that you have to be everywhere, but it's not as much a necessity as it is a want or desire because if you passionately love it, you want to be out there. And so I've learned, and I say this now, that a lot of the stuff that, that you can do in my my place was, a lot was work-related. Like right now there's, there's I mean, and the shows are work, don't get me wrong, but if you can figure out a way to, to balance it and to figure out what you can say yes to, what you can say no to, how to balance what's important, with what, your family, your, your wife, you know, the other things. And I'm saying that coming off, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've uh, had some failed marriages. And so now I think I'm smarter. I'm less self selfish than I was before. I think some of those times when I was selfish helped me in my career to, to get out and challenge myself to hunt some situations that I wouldn't have put myself in had I not basically just been running so hard. So now then, yes, I'm, I'm definitely more deliberate in what I do. I'm a lot less selfish in what I do that doesn't mean that you can't enjoy or do some things you've never done. But now I look at, I look at the weekends different. I look at these trips different. I look at, I look at the hunts different. I, I look at, you know, where I go turkey hunting, you know, and, and who I can bring along This maybe in my family and, uh, and see them be successful and, and take my kids to these National Wild Turkey Federation events so they can enjoy and see not only what's out there, but also see what I do for a living and get a better understanding of where my time is spent. And, um, and so yeah i think i've definitely weaned down a lot but it doesn't mean i I think i figured out how to do more by doing less if that makes sense i've I've, I've definitely have learned to not waste my time doing things that are just kind of doodling in the wind and uh because the kids grow up you know and then and then when it's all said and done the the things that you got here at home are in the end going to be the most important thing to all of us if if you focus on that and so uh I've been really blessed to to do all that. And I say all that not to say that somebody's wrong by running so hard. I say that because I've, I've, I've done it. I've been there. I've done that. I see I see what I've gained in it. And I also see what I've lost in it. And at the end of it, the number one gain is I've had a chance to hunt some areas I've never thought I'd ever see. And, and now I've I've been able to refocus and understand how much I truly love the outdoors in respect of just how, important our dominion and our opportunity to hunt and fish is and to have a chance to look back all these years and even now to celebrate it and to hopefully through my adventures hopefully know that somebody else has decided to give it a shot whether it's to buy a hunting license for the first time or maybe to venture out of maybe their home state of Georgia or Alabama or even Iowa and to try something different and to go somewhere um I I think that's what it's all about it's definitely not about how big an animal I've killed it's about how those experiences and those adventures I've taken that maybe has, you know, kind of got into the living rooms of other people's homes that's made them say, this is fun. This looks cool. Um, because I think it would be shallow just to say, Hey, look at me. I killed something bigger than you and I've shot more turkeys or whatever. I think that would be really shallow. And I think if you do it for that reason, I don't think you're going to find much success and you're certainly not going to do a lot of good to the hunting industry.
0: Right. For sure. Now, kind of, Sticking with family, but, you know, switching topics just a bit. Let's go all the way back to uh when you were just a little one. And I want you to talk about some of the very first memories that you had as a kid with your families, I guess, being introduced to the outdoors.
1: Well, when I was a kid, um my, I, I remember my dad... um and my uncle Morgan was the first two people I ever realized that hunted kind of for sport, I guess you would say. I mean, obviously they ate everything they shot. And even looking back further than that, my Papa Waddell, he was the first person I ever saw really hunted. And, and he, I don't even know that he'd done it for sport. I mean, I remember him doing things and, you know, having turtle traps out and, and running trot lines. And I mean, he ate everything. I mean, I remember him catching coons and feeding them out and a rabbit pen and, and, with corn and eating them um but it's it's like growing up in a rural area in Georgia I think I always was around hunting and fishing and and really when I was about 11 or 12 years old that I really realized that it was actually something you could do just for fun I guess as well rather than just substance. And 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 I look back now I feel really blessed to see that some people in my family didn't hunt just for the standpoint of look at what I shot or trying to kill a trophy that put on the Boone and Crockett scale or Pope and Young. They were hunting because they were eating this meat. They depended on it. And so it was my dad and my uncle Morgan who really realized to helped me understand that through hunting was what they liked to do past just, um, you know, just, just, just something to eat. And so uh, I think there's two sides of that. So, so looking back, it was my dad and uncle Morgan who really got me into it. when I was young, they, they really would have me out there and, and just, you know, taking me squirrel hunting, rabbit hunting,
0: you know started deer hunting when i was about 12 years old turkey hunting when i was about 13 so what you're saying is that it necessarily wasn't about just the meat it was about going out and enjoying yourself at the same time
1: yeah and, and it was weird it, it, and really at the time i didn't really i thought everybody hunted i thought everybody right. fished because i grew up in this country as a chicken coop in this area called Booger Bottom Georgia that everything was just country living i mean we had just a couple channels at old you probably remember the days you turned the antenna that you know we could watch <laughs> the dukes of hazard on friday night and if you was you know had a little extra money you could get a super booster and get like tbs and watch the braves i mean literally we didn't have much and um but we had everything and so everybody everybody around me all these country people had gardens they hunted they squirrel hunted but those early stages of remembering that, I didn't see them doing it just for fun. They they right. did it to, to eat. And it was like, it's almost like how we go to the grocery store, or maybe run to McDonald's. I remember some of these old timers doing it at that level. But it was my dad, Uncle Morgan, that I first realized that, wait a minute, they're not doing this because we don't have meat in the freezer. They're doing this because they want to shoot a big buck. They're doing this because it's just a big thing they do on the weekends after they've worked their butt off, you know, 60 hours a week. Yep. And now they get a chance to go hunting. And so... It was kind of cool because I don't think a lot of the culture now, even a lot of the people on the TV shows grew up that way that they saw both sides of it. And so for me, it gave me a newfound respect of what both hunting for, for food, hunting for substances and hunting for sport. And just almost, I call it like a redneck Prozac. I mean, literally, I mean, our counselor is 20 foot up a you know, Oak tree on a frosty morning. I mean, that, that's what kind of resets our, you know go get them clock and makes us strong to go root around a little bit in life and you know go to work on a Monday morning with a decent attitude if we don't get those weekends that we can enjoy and relax and recharge in the woods not necessarily just shooting something then it becomes more of a you know life is harder to deal with and only people who hunt understand that so for me uh I remember seeing both sides of it and so and even to this day, I kind of dabble into both. I mean, my, my freezer is full of deer meat. And I looked, and I had seven, you know, frozen wild turkeys. And I told my wife, I said, we got to thaw and these things. It's time to eat, <laughs> eat some turkey, you know. When we need to make room for the new hatch coming in, or new batch that's going to be coming in the spring when we, you know, find some success. So, I don't know. I, I feel like I was, uh, I think John Denver said, you know, thank God I'm a country boy. I, I really do look now and really appreciate it. And what's kind of different now is raising my kids, they'll never see us hunting at the level that I remember my Pawpaw Waddell did. I mean, literally, Dan, I I remember seeing him doing things. Now that I look back, it was highly illegal. I remember seeing him have (laughs) bird baskets out, like literally bird baskets. But he wasn't trying to catch a quail to be bragging. He was trying to catch some quail because it was like a wild chicken to him. You know, I mean, literally. And so, you know, rabbit boxes, uh, you know, trap lines and going gigging for frogs, and literally, like, you know, finding, you know, going, you know, looking under stumps and and, and and banging around in the swamps trying to find, you know, loggerhead turtle, snapping turtle to eat. And so, uh, you know, I remember it didn't matter what time of year, if he saw a rabbit out there other than the farmer because it might have worms in it, how about would whack that rabbit and eat it? So <laughs> it was so cool for me to see that. He he wasn't even thinking about things being illegal. He was thinking it was what was for supper. Right. He di- He didn't, like, shoot this to... Post a picture to put on Instagram. He was doing it because he could tell, you know, Grandmama, look, we're gonna eat good tonight. You know, I got this sweet corn, we got some butter beans, and we got us some fresh rabbits. I mean, end the story. And so, uh, I and so I just feel like super blessed. And sometimes now reminiscing, I go back to those days, and I realize that man, what a lucky dude I've been. And it's really not just because of where I've got a chance to go since my career in the hunting industry. I had that opportunity. It's really the foundation of where I started there. And I think that is what's helped me somewhat feel legit and remain legit and hopefully portray that I'm not a poser at all. This is really me. This is what I love to do. And if I never, ever get a chance to ever do another television show in this industry or a podcast like I'm doing with you, I'm going to hunt and fish until the good Lord gives me a breath, just like so many of the listeners are going to do. So it's not about what I shoot, how big I shoot, what I shot it with, or look at me—I'm tough or I'm this and that. It's completely about—it's just something that's a part of me, like walking, like breathing, like loving a, a good Sunday dinner. You know, um, I just love it. It's—it really gives me a lot of joy.
0: So you know, as you started growing up, was was there a specific moment? You know. At, you were Because for me, I can remember growing up and my uncles were trappers, right? Um, and some of my first outdoor experiences were <laughs> my, my uncle was out in college, so my grandma had to run the trap lines. And I spent a lot of time on the farm with my uh, grandparents. They were basically my babysitters growing up. And I remember it was my job. My grandma would pull the trap out of the water, and if the animal was still alive. I just beat it over the head with a baseball bat (laughs) to finish it off. So, um, and that for me was kind of, uh, I like doing this kind of stuff, Um, but but never really got hardcore into it until later on in life. Was there a moment uh, in your life that, you know, especially like the teenage years where it just was kind of a boom, I am going to be an outdoorsman?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, I think early on, when I had a chance to kind of dig into it, actually, my mother um, used to just, you know, I, I remember my mom and dad actually getting fusses, like getting in fights about my dad always hunting. And I remember my mom saying, boy, you ain't going to hunt as much as your daddy. you going to stay here with your mama. And Just, just typical little mama talk, you know. And, and, uh, and, I, and I remember telling her, like, I'm talking about like nine and ten years old. Like, yeah, mama, I, I'm just going to, daddy's crazy. He's cold out there. And, you know, this and that. And it's it funny, I never forget when I was about 11 or 12, my dad said, boy, you want to go hunt with me? I said, well, sure, you know. And, and prior to that, I was going squirrel hunting and stuff like that and rabbit hunting, but it was deer hunting that I remember my dad was obsessed with. And so I remember going with him and then I went out and shot me a good buck, uh, one one day one year. My actually one of my first hunts I ever went on when I was about twelve years old. Shot a buck, ended up winning the big buck trading post. That particular morning I actually shot three deer. And um and what's funny is I remember getting back and my mom, and I was just giddy and glowing and immediately <laughs> that night after I shot him and we didn't took him to the deer processor and this and that. I remember my mama said Boy, she said, I I done lost you, ain't you? And I said she said, You're gonna be hunting with your daddy every chance you get. And I remember telling her I said, Mom, I love you, but yeah, I'm gonna be with daddy hunting, you know. <laughs> and so I probably even then I knew I loved to hunt. But from a from from a standpoint of where I was really bitten and it just like took it to a whole nother level is when I was about thirteen or fourteen, we started seeing wild turkeys around our house in Georgia. And um I remember my Uncle Morgan said, You ain't gonna believe what I saw down there by the corner stand. Man, we we guessed from Bigfoot to mountain lions to sheep. I mean, literally. I mean and and then he said, No, as a wild turkey. And so that next spring, me and Dad had a Ben Lee Alhooter and a Lynch Fulproof box call and a Remington eight seventy and lo and behold, knew nothing about it, got lucky and killed a world record Jake. <laughs> I mean, we was hooked. <laughs> and, um, and so I just become obsessed with the idea that you could take you know, these calls and learn the language of this wild animal and the better you mastered it and understood the woods, the more you could find success. And in about that same time too, Dan, that was instrumental in me falling in love with turkey hunting was the fact that kind of the boom in the big deer that was killed in the, in our area where we had a lot of corn and soybeans in the South, everything turned into CRP. All the fields become pine trees. That really hurt the, the amount of deer in our area because Obviously, all this forage and all these protein-rich, you know, farm fields become just a pine tree. And, uh, and so, at that single moment in history, too, everybody in the world, hunting become really popular uh, as far as rifle hunting around our area. So, a lot of the deer got shot, so it was hard to find a good, solid deer. I mean, most of the deer we were shooting were year and a half old. So, I kind of got tired of shooting just young bucks, and there was nothing else to shoot if you was tired of that. And so... I really just put myself into turkey hunting in a big way. Right. And obviously a two-year-old Longbeard was a trophy animal. And so uh, I soon started winning turkey calling contest. And then immediately, you know, I met up with the guys at Real Tree, and they, they paid me to go guide turkey hunters and guide outdoor riders and celebrities. And I think it was around then, probably when I was between 18 and 21 years of age. That's when it hit me that thought, man, I could, but there is a such thing as a hunting industry. In other words, where you can have a job working to promote, whether it be through guiding, through selling product, through all these things that I can make a living. I didn't know what or how. Um, Never had any intentions of being a TV host. Never was a goal nor dream. Everything just kind of happened. Doors opened, and I met a lot of really cool people. And the one thing I remember more than anything there was no job that I wouldn't have done from weed eat to sweep floors, to clean t- toilets, to guide turkey hunters, to hang tree stands, to run a camera, to go hunt, what whatever. And, and I think that's one thing I've always told the young kids that want to go out there. I think everybody wants to be a TV, you know, personality. And so they just want to start by being a TV personality. Yeah. It can happen. But you know, you got to be, if you really love it, you got to jump in there and you got to pay your dues and you got to work. And I think that goes whether you're going to be a professional football player or anything. You don't start and when they wake up, you know, when you're 30 years old and you're going to go play for the Atlanta Falcons. There's a lot of practices, there's a lot of working out, and there's a lot of wind sprints, there's a lot of things you did pretty much from, from a young age all the way through high school through college to make it to that pro level. And then only then there's only a small percentage that make it. So um, I think hard work. And that, that my dad instilled in me and just a good attitude helped me gain some respect and get the opportunities that a lot of people wouldn't have got back in then because anybody that I worked around and with, whatever they needed me to do, I would do it. And so uh, uh but it was it was around that time, I say eighteen twenty one, and I realized that I want to do something like this. And probably I was even younger than that when I realized that man, I'm gonna be a hunter, probably around twelve.
0: Yeah. So when you, when you were starting to do that turkey calling and, and started that realization um, that, hey, I could make some money from the hunting industry, what did your folks say about that?
1: Well, growing up in a rural area, everybody thought I was crazy, yeah. um, except maybe my dad. I, but I remember having some really frank conversations with my grandmother. Um, Another thing that, that, that was kind of a, a sad situation that kind of put me in overdrive for hunting was when I was 16, my mother was diagnosed with, uh, or actually she was 15, but she was diagnosed with with leukemia, and she, she uh, got diagnosed in February, and she passed away that, that same June, and that was devastating to my my dad and myself. We had, at the time, seven foster brothers and sisters. So our house full of kids that we were trying to give back to and help through these hard times. My mama was really big on that. We didn't have a lot of money, but my mom had a big heart and a big kitchen and she was always feeding everybody. And she was kind of the matriarch of our family. My dad was the breadwinner, but my mom was the glue that kept everything together. So when that happened, obviously all of my foster brothers and sisters, they went away. So it was just me, my dad, and my one sister. And so for my dad, and I, we, we were broke. We went bankrupt. Um, we didn't have insurance. Uh, it, it was just probably the hardest time I will ever go through in my life looking back. And so hunting period was the only thing and each other, my dad and I grew really tight together because, you know, we'd be crying and it was like, well, you know, good news. It's going to be a frosty morning. Let's go try to kill a doe under out in that food plot over there, you know, and, and, and literally just, it was our counseling. I mean, we, yeah. we didn't have them we didn't go to talk to some psychiatrist and talk about what was going through. We, we prayed and, and, and went to church and prayed and asked for, you know, just to get us through it. And then we went hunting and, and that was it. And, and there's not a lot of people that understand that. And it's these rural areas and families that, that hunt a lot and fish a lot. And so for me, I just dug myself into it. And so I, it was almost like an escape. I felt like the better I could understand wildlife, and the better I could get at this thing called hunting, it just drew me into a, a better place in life. Not not from a competitive standpoint around the area with other hunters. It just, I just felt felt alive, and I felt peace when I was in the woods. Especially as I learned more about how to manipulate a turkey and got better at turkey calling. And so, uh, really, and then when it led into a chance to get get a job. And I realized they could be one. Uh, Everybody in my family was very blue collar. My dad was a contractor, a carpenter. My uncle was, you know, my grandmother, my mother had worked at the mill. um, And so, or play techs at the time, you know, literally building bras and panties. And so everybody (laughs) worked and you did something with your hands. Uh, Nobody in my family had a college degree. College wasn't even something you thought about. I never remember hearing my dad say, you got to go to college when you graduate. And so what I always heard, though, you got to go to work, you know. And so when I mentioned that Realtree had hired me as a guide and they wanted me to run a camera, I remember my grandmother, who loved me like no other, telling me in a serious tone, said, Michael, you've got to realize that you can't make a living hunting and fishing. And I remember I said, Grandmama, but I'm running a camera. I'm really not hunting and fishing. And I think for the simplicity that my family was raised as hardworking Americans, they always looked at hunting as a hobby. And so it was kind of strange, Dan, that yes, I did have a lot of pushback on my family that they thought this was going to be something I did. Kind of like the kid who said, you know, I'm going to move to Nashville and be a country singer you know, and then you run out there and, you know, just like I'd probably tell my boy if he did it, like, hey, you get up there and run give a run, but you realize after a couple of years you gotta realize you gotta to go to work. And yeah even though a lot of, I mean, Jason Aldean works and he works on stage singing his song. So it' Luke Bryan and a lot of other people we know. I think they looked at this hunting thing for me as just that. Yeah. And so it wasn't until later that my uncles, my aunts, uh, my grandmama passed away before she really even realized it. I mean, I was already starting to be successful at it. And I remember it become a joke. I'd sit over there and my grandmom would say, Mike, I just wish you'd go back and get you that heat and an air truck he used to drive and and he was making good money up there you know and I never told my grandma like grandma I'm making three times more you know <laughs> doing this hunting thing and I am being a heat and an air man at this point and but she was more proud that I had a heat and an air truck that that I had Michael on the side of it and I had a uniform and a, yep. you know what I mean and so yep. it, it was it was different and, and Dan and you asked the question because I, I know I'm sure you've had the same questions and it, it's an odd thing and, and now i think it's more obvious there is a hunting industry you can turn on the oh, yeah. network television shows and you see them and so it's not something that's frowned upon i think if a young kid comes in and says Look, one day i want to work in the hunting industry i don't think a mom and dad says no that's that's not possible so but for me it was really awkward to my family that you know Michael's has gone crazy heck he's he's thinking he can make a living going out there hunting
0: <laughs> you know <laughs> so it was really funny so You you jump on board with Realtree, and uh, from there, you know, that story has been told uh, quite a few times. But as far as the hunting industry itself is concerned, back then when you started, uh, until today, how have things changed? I know that's a a very uh, vague question, but um, feel free to give your best answer. It's changed a lot,
1: a lot for the good. And some for the bad. It, it's I, I think somewhere we got to find some middle ground right now where the industry's at. And uh, now I've I've had a chance to work in the hunting industry for 22 years. So ever since I've been 21 years old, I've been working in this industry at some level or capacity. Back then, the number one thing that I realized was everything was very stiff. Unless you enjoyed seeing a successful turkey hunt or a deer hunt. There was no entertainment value to any of the hunting shows. Now, some people might get mad at me for saying that, but that's a fact. And if you don't believe me, ask your wife. Um, you <laughs> know, ask my wife. A- ask any woman who was forced to watch that. It, 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 there was probably There's probably more entertainment of us being forced to watch Bachelor or Bachelorette than for our wives who <laughs> to have watched, you know, really Realtree Outdoors back in 1994, Um, because it was really stiff. You you didn't know or really understand the personalities of these men and women that were on these networks, because I think we were worried about making an excuse for this lifestyle that we went out and shot animals. And so uh, I realized right away that 90% of these TV personalities were so much funnier, had so much more personality than what I was seeing on the TV shows. So I think think the industry has changed to where you can – be proud or you don't have to play defense when it comes to who you are as a hunter or the excitement that you get from finally shooting a turkey that, that maybe has been eluding you or finally getting that big buck that's on your trail cameras. that has been, you know, pretty much nocturnal all year and you finally got lucky and got the air in him, you know, one frosty morning. Uh, and, and that emotion that comes out, it's not a he man, it's just, you're excited. It's, it's, it's it's a relief, a relief and a release. And so, uh, I think you can cut up around camp, and so you can show it the way it is. Um, So I think it has changed a lot in that. On the other side of it, I think hunting also has been found that there's a lot of money around it. So I think industry has really moved in. I think you got a lot of big business that has moved in and around it that has really not a lot of passion for the hunt or the culture of, of the hunter and to make it progressing in a positive direction. It's more about there's money there. There's 13 million rednecks that buy this product, and we're going to get here and do what we can, and, and I think some of that is not necessarily good in this industry, because I think it over-commercializes it, it and it sometimes can take advantage of the hardworking men and women who do put their money into uh, hunting apparel and hunting gear. So that part of it, I don't like. Um, I think there is a lot of uh, people who, that has changed in the way that they think immediately that if they can just go out and kill some big huge animals that they can become a household name or be loved by the hunting community i don't think that's that can happen i think you can get respect sometimes if you kill a big animal i think it's nice we all desire that but i think it's in the way you promote it the fun and the adventure and you know bottom line is i don't care who you are if uh or what you shoot if somebody at the end of the day don't want to spend or get excited about sharing camp with you and just hanging out and shooting the bull and going hunting turkeys with you or shooting dove, right. then, you know, you can't make a living just because your mama wants to see you. You got to have other people want to hang around you. And and so uh, some, some of those characters, I think they, they put themselves on this pedestal, this self-proclaimed pedestal of excellence or elitism, but they're the only ones that's really their fan. And uh, and like I said, these are, these are hard things. A lot of times, the industry don't want to talk about it, but it's very appa- apparent. And the only reason I even talk at that level is because I feel like I've earned that right to discuss it at this level. Because I sincerely love what our culture stands for, and I think in order for us to do it justice, we all have to figure out that right messaging. As we find out now that we're losing hunters, we got to find out what is the message that gets people to resign out and rededicate their lives and families to hunting, to conservation, to this hunting heritage. And it's not going to happen through being elite. It's not going to happen. It doesn't mean that Dan, me and you don't want to be the best hunter we can be. It doesn't mean that we don't have bragging rights. If, if, if we can hit a dot at a hundred yards, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be proud if we can, you know, run 10 miles and not even break a sweat, but to everybody, that ain't fun. I mean, and so, Uh, our industry is so divided sometimes to where, you know, now it's like, you know, Dan, so you got a nice buck. Well, what'd you shoot him with? Where was he at? Did you have any trail cam pictures? How old was he? Did you shoot him in a blind or was you on a tree stand? Oh, was you on the ground? Did you still hunt him? Was it on private ground, public ground? Do it yourself? I mean, there's all these questions that every hunter gets to ask to find out if they're legit or not. And bottom line is, I hunt for one simple reason, Dan, at this point in my life. I'm a 43-year-old man who's always worked my butt off to pay my taxes and take care of my family. I've been blessed that I work in the industry, that my adventures are videotaped, that we can hopefully find some entertainment or bring some entertainment to some living rooms across America. However, the number one reason I hunt is because it's fun. I enjoy it. The thought of hanging up this call and you saying, hey, Waddell, I'm 10 minutes away. I'm bringing some ribs. I got some of those red link sausage and I pulled and I pulled went through North Carolina and got some of that good barbecue sauce you like so much. Next 3 or 4 days let's go kill us some turkeys. That to me still sounds fun. Yeah. That sounds fun to me. If we kill something fine, if we don't, that's fine. I got a buddy named Dan that's coming down. We're going to chase turkeys. We're going to eat some good food. We're going to tell some lies. We might drink sweet tea. We might drink an adult beverage. It's our (laughs) prerogative. We've all worked too damn hard to not enjoy that part. And I think that when it gets down to it, we have got to concentrate on bringing fun back to the hunt. And and I think the more we do that, then our kids are going to want to put these iPhones. They're going to, our wives are going to say, you know what? My husband's hunting camp looks fun. My yeah. God, they're they're cooking like they're in some New York City deli or a <laughs> restaurant. I mean, that, you know that dude makes the best chili I've ever had. They can build a big campfire at night and tell stories and listen to some good old country music. And I mean, th- this ain't about killing stuff. This is about just fun vacation. I think when we start celebrating that more, I think we'll start immediately start changing the mindset of these young kids, women, and I think we can rededicate a lot of these hunters that otherwise it's gotten too expensive. To, to get out there and hunt based on the criteria of what they feel like they got to be as a man to shoot a deer, right. you know? And so uh, I just think that's some problems that went to the bad that necessarily didn't exist as much in those early years that it's evolved into. And I think that's something we got to get out of it to. So combine the standpoint of having fun, using your personality, using the fun of it, but eliminate this elitism that so much of the industry is uh, just kind of replicating right now and trying to think that that's what's going to put them on top. Are put them on top as somebody who can help sell stuff. I don't think it sells. That's just my opinion. Right,
0: right. And kind of elaborating on that, um, you know, this past year at the ATA show, uh, I, I walked up and down the halls and I saw, and this is just my uh, personal view on things, I saw kind of a lack of acknowledgement uh, towards conservation efforts whether it was for deer or for turkey or for elk or for sheep Um, how important is it to have the industry also or when i say industry i mean the companies in general to also have a focus on conservation as well
1: i think it's very important I, i think a lot of times that us as hunters sometimes we don't really understand what conservation means meaning sometimes i think conservation is kind of a weird term because i think in our world we look at it as being conservative or maybe we're trying to conserve and therefore it won't give us an opportunity to hunt it so i think what the industry has to do along with the non-profit organizations of one one actually two i think is doing as good a job as ever is um Oh, actually, three. I should put three. But the National Wild Turkey Federation does a phenomenal job of combining true conservation with hunting heritage. Um, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation does a phenomenal job. And another organization that that's doing a good job is Quality Deer Management. I think. Um, but when it gets down to it, yes, conservation has to exist, especially now with the expansion of human, and we have to make sure we conserve. And obviously, hunters are the number one conservation out there. I just think there needs to be some education. And these companies and these nonprofit organizations that are about conservation have to educate us as the hunters that conservation is not something that goes against hunting. It's actually all fart, and the messaging has to be right side by side, and um, to where it preaches hunting heritage and conservation. Because if you don't conserve, you don't have nothing. I mean, prime example: look at our checking accounts. There's con- if you don't have, if you don't practice a little bit of conservation you know, in your pu- public, in your private finance, I can tell you, you're going to be broke. I mean, you better <laughs> learn how to, that, and so you're, you're conserving so you can spend more. Right. Uh, and so I, I definitely think conservation goes hand in hand and we definitely have to stand behind it. And I think every company that that makes a living or does has a representation in the industry definitely needs to put back to these conservation groups.
0: Gotcha. Um, do you still have any type of role uh, with NWTF? Actually, I do. Um, I actually serve as,
1: as kind of a co-chair with, with Brenda Valentine. She's a female. And actually, uh, Ryan Newman is actually signed on, too. we are basically, what you want to call it, try to be ambassadors, you know, uh, national spokespeople. Um, I, I do go to a lot of banquets this past weekend. I went to North Carolina, and uh, they had their annual youth season. I went down, and we we donated basically several... Hunts to where I went, took kids out. I was at three different banquets as well as a youth hunt, just really trying to promote hunting in general through through the National Turkey Federation. So yes, I'm very involved in the National Turkey Federation, and I will be long as they allow me to be because that's where I kind of got my start and that's where the doors opened in the industry it was through the turkey hunting part of it. And uh, and with that said, after really really digging in deep before I kind of put my name and attached myself at that level with the national Anthem church federation, I want to sit back and go to a lot of these events and see what they really did with their money and see if they practice what they preached. And, and through my diligence, I found that they did at a level that was astonishing to me. So I really enjoy it. It's kind of, I'm not, despite what people think, I'm not, I'm not like a super wealthy man. I've made a good living in this industry. So I'm not in a place that I can just go write a million dollar check or even a our company's not in a place where I can even give them a four or $500,000 check. If I can and we get to that place, I gladly will. But right now, I can give them my time. I can give them my dedication. I can auction off some hunts to where I can take kids or and I can put that money back into the uh, organization. So that's kind of what I'm doing from the standpoint of just my – not necessarily philanthropy, but my way of saying thank you to this industry has given me an opportunity to uh, – I mean, my goodness – where else, Dan, can you take a turkey call and figure out a way to make a living with it? You're not doing that in <laughs> North Korea and Turkmenistan and, and everywhere else. You can't do it in France. You can't do it in Germany, but you can do it in America. So for me, the National Turk Turkey Federation is one place I can – I feel strong and feel good laying in bed at night knowing, knowing that I'm working with them and helping kind of get their message out there.
0: Right, right. Now – this is I, I'm a I hate politics. All right, I'm that kind of guy. I, <laughs> I I get in arguments with my friends, and I just tur- would rather turn around and walk away. But you know, you were you were fairly adamant about um, politics in this last election, and a lot of it revolved around. Uh, I shouldn't say all of it, but you know, for conservatives, we o- we always talk about the. Um, you know, the Second Amendment, right? And right to bear arms right. and, all, and all that stuff. But as conservatives, you know, the hunters, we, a lot of us hunt on public ground. And a lot of that ground is um, in jeopardy right now with all of these, um, you know, these uh, federal to state transfers. As conservatives, would you have any advice or any information to give us about how to be conservative and vote conservative, but at the same time, the, 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 the politicians that we are representing are also trying to take away something that we love as well.
1: Yes, Dan. And that brings up a really good point. And, and it's, and, and I'm, I'm like you, I hate politics. I, I think most, all politicians, I've just never been a big fan of. The more I learn about them, the more I don't like them. Again, I'm not saying all politicians are bad. I'm just not into politics, nor am I into politicians. I've just never seen a lot of good come out of it. <laughs> right. However, in, in, where we sit, and you're right, conservative. Uh, um, most most hunters are conservative, and better yet, most hunters work for their families. They're not. They don't feel entitled. Meaning, just look at what hunting stands for. I'm going to leave my home, and we're getting back to the early conversation of how I looked and saw hunting when I was a kid. I saw my papa or my dad leave my home to go out to get something in the wild, to grow shop in the wild, to bring home to my family. That is is proof that no hunter truly feels entitled. It, It proves he understands how to take advantage of his opportunity. So typically, hunters are conservative people that don't feel entitled, so that means they will get up and go to work to bring home income for their family. Uh, And so I think that's why most people, you know, vote Republican on the conservative side when it comes to hunting. However, you bring up a great point about the public ground. it has been a lot of controversy and and stuff, and even when the Clinton campaign and and Trump finally made it to the point where he was going to get a chance to to be the Republican nominee, there was still a lot of indecisiveness, especially on that topic, like, well, holy cow, you know, uh, the, the 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 Republicans are going to do away with our, you know, public grounds are going to do this and that. So thank the Lord. I've never had this opportunity, Dan, but I personally had a chance to sit down and talk to Donald Trump, Donald Trump Jr. and Eric in Las Vegas um, two years ago. I personally, and the whole meeting was, he had met with about 30 people in the hunting industry. And I was one of the lucky people who got a chance to sit down and talk with him. I was not necessarily on this Trump, Train. I knew I wasn't on the Clinton train. I, I would have voted for a Ninja Turtle, the weakest Ninja Turtle, <laughs> rather than vote for freaking Hillary Clinton. I can tell you that. And uh however, I wasn't one hundred percent convinced of everything Trump was saying and doing. And, and this was one of the bills or one of the parts of it. I personally asked him what he thought of it. I personally asked him, me and him, nobody else but him and his two boys sitting there, because he said, "Michael, we got to get these hunters out to vote I and mean, vote for me." And I was like. Right but Donald, why should they vote for you? You know, I don't mind doing that. And I was a little intimidated. I never talked to a president nominee, presidential nominee. And, and I was like, I don't mind. I said, from what I said, I know I'm not voting for Clinton. I said, but, you know, I have integrity. I, I, if I tell people who watch our shows or maybe tune in our Facebook, you know, how do you feel about it? And 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 Donald Senior spoke up and Donald Junior spoke up. You know, it was kind of both, Good to hear. Donald, Donald Sr. said, Michael, he said, first of all, you ain't going to find two no bigger hunters than my two boys right here. And um, he said, they hunt public ground. They hunt private ground. He said, they've taken me hunting. I've hunted quite a bit, but I've learned that I suck at it. I'm not good. I don't have the patience, <laughs> And which which makes sense. You know, you see his personality. He said, but I'm for it. I'm not against it. He pulled out at that same time. He pulled out his wallet and showed me he had a New York concealed carry. And I'm thinking, I'm just a redneck from freaking Georgia you know, here he is talking to me. And, and, you know, and so immediately when I left there, one thing we talked about was a public ground deal and I haven't really kept up with it all to date, but Donald Jr. told me that that was one of the biggest things they were going to fight to protect, to make sure that public ground that, that we had the right to continue hunting. As a matter of fact, they even said they wanted to change the laws and even some of these other parks to where it was open to public hunting. And so That was something immediately when I left that particular meeting, I thought, okay, I'm in. So if they do anything different, then they're looking me in the eye and they lie to me. Not saying a politician can't. They make a living line. But at that particular time, Donald Trump didn't appear to be a politician. He, he, He actually appeared to be a very rich American who was sick of politics. So therefore, that's how I felt. And the one specific issue that came up was public ground. So... I'm going to see. I, I do talk to Donald Trump Jr. Uh, from time to time. We text a lot, and so that's one thing I want to follow up with them and make sure they're making strides on to, to see and check in because I've had a lot of people that have asked me specifically about the public hunting, and they feel that potentially it is a conservative party that's going to do away with it. Yep. Based on the information I got and the insight, uh, the Trump campaign is fighting hard to make sure they they resist that and they keep it, there for you and i however as we see and there's a lot of resistance sometimes it's it, it, it that's a strange world up there in washington dc but uh as long as i can breathe and i've got their numbers i'm gonna call them every day to remind them of what they told me that particular day in las vegas
0: <laughs> well hopefully all that holds true man um i sure hope so so getting back to the fun stuff now um you know you've you know, you've been in the industry damn near 20 years now or over 20 years and you've, you've had the opportunity to do several things, go on, you know, several hunts. Do you have a, like a favorite hunt that you look forward to every year or a a hunt that was maybe a a once in a lifetime hunt that uh, just blew you away? Um, yeah, it's funny for me. it's, It's more seasonal. Um,
1: I would say probably the the biggest vibe of excitement I have every year is when I know turkey season is coming in. Not particularly a particular hunt, but just the season in general. I just freak out. I become ten years old again. I'm sitting around in a daze. My wife is, you know, like Michael. What's bothering you? What are you thinking about right now? It's like that epi- It's like that scene on Sling Blade when. You Know, yeah, John Ritter remember that, and he's like, What are you thinking about right now? You're in deep thought. And remember, he said, I, I just want a couple of cans of that potted meat and some of them taters or what I don't forgot what it was. French fried taters but for me, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've made a couple more cans of that potted meat. So, my wife, are like, What are you thinking about right now? I'm like, you don't, it's really boring, and like, What seriously? <laughs> she's thinking, I'm depressed about something like I was really thinking that tomorrow I'm going to set up on that east ridge and I think them turkeys are moving up that bottom kind of going back out toward that you know boat plot stand or you know and and she's like are you serious I'm like yeah and pretty much anytime you see me looking this way I'm thinking about how to kill a turkey and where they're going to be gobbling and so uh that that is held true I'm proud to say that this has been the 29th year in a row that I've never missed an opening day of turkey season in Georgia with my dad. This particular spring, um, my dad killed one Saturday and my oldest son killed one Sunday, both of them in booger bottom. And so that nearly like brings a tear to my eye now because now I'm getting way more sentimental. I would say the only other hunt that really just freaks me out that I get that type of excitement is is elk season. So, uh, i i don't know i just i just i love elk hunting and probably the number one best hunt i've ever been on that i remember that still just chokes me up is and, and for fun and the value of it was if you heard any part of this podcast at the beginning you heard me talk about my mother and you heard talk about the relationship i had with my dad after my mother passed away and even prior to that 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 we really didn't have a lot of money and we'd always dreamed of, of going elk hunting out west you know and so I had that opportunity to go first, and so my dad um, had always said, he said, you know, man, one day me or you one's going to get an elk. We never say we're going to kill a bunch of elk. But like me or you one, we're going to get a chance to shoot an elk with our bow and arrow, and we're going to put an elk over the fireplace. And uh, and so it was kind of like one of these almost pipe dreams, like bucket list things that yeah. we knew one day we'd hope to do. We never had the money. Well, I got a chance to start working in the industry. I got an elk with my bow. First, and I'd had a chance to kill several through my career. And so it's the first thing I did when, when I made a little bit of money at Bone Collector. Actually, not even on Bone Collector. Bone Collector still wasn't making any money. I had gotten just enough personal endorsements and money that I went, and I'm telling you I spent $10,000, and I bought my dad an elk hunt at the Seal of La Vista where I'd seen them Primos boys doing their truth video. And why I've seen so many other hunting shows, I think Texas Trophy Hunters and so on and so forth, and I was like, you know what? I'm not looking for anything but the best. My dad has busted his ass his whole life to make sure I had food on the table, electricity in my house. I had football cleats to run in, and he took me to every football practice or baseball, whatever. I'm going to buy him an elk hunt. And I went out there, and me and my dad went, and I'm telling you, Dan, he... we, we hunted for about three or four days. We was on Bugle and Ilk. This bull comes screaming up through there. It was about a 315-inch six by 6 My dad shot that bull, and I cried <laughs> like a baby. I mean, I, it was just, I can't even explain it. And we got it on video. It was on the episode of Bone Collector in, uh, that first season. And uh, that was probably my favorite hunt. And it was almost like the first time in my life that I felt like my dad had did so much for me that I felt like I had just at that point, give back something to him that he might not have felt like he could have ever gotten on his own and, and i can't explain that emotion but that that was the coolest feeling for me as a son to be able to deliver that and to get it on video it brought back floods of memories from my mom those hard times and and even now i was thinking you know what there's going to be a freaking elk over my fireplace in google bottom for my dad and so even now talking about i get choked up but that that's probably been my all-time favorite hunt and you know, I've seen my all my kids. I got one in here that's only uh, nine months old, so obviously he ain't shot nothing yet. But <laughs> all my kids have had a chance to be there when they got deer and turkey. And uh, that was really special. But there was something about that that just, I'd be hard to beat. It'd yeah. just be hard to beat because it's, it's all about where I was from. There's a lot of tragedy in it. But at that point, it was wildlife. And it wasn't about the death of an elk. It was about, we made it. Me and my dad made it through this, tough cycle in life and we experienced something together that really felt like a pipe dream you know years ago especially when we were bankrupt broke you know mom was gone his wife was gone and it was just something we talked about over a tomato sandwich watching dukes of hazard literally you know and and now it's like we did it you know it's just a very spiritual thank you jesus type of opportunity and so uh I don't know. It's like, that was just one of the coolest experiences I've ever had in the woods. Right.
0: Well, man, that's a, that's an awesome story. Um, now as the, you know, that's a great story about your, your dad, but you know, as any good hunter and any good father is going to do, he's going to try to pass those traditions down to his kin as well. So are your, are your kids, um, as enthusiastic about hunting as you are or do you have a couple that are Meh, I, my dad hunts and I'm really not into it
1: yeah yeah I, I've got <laughs> enough kids that obviously uh I'm gonna have a lot of different vibes and feelings with them but are they you know they have toward it and I would say overall all my kids enjoy it um okay. I would say I would say right now you know out of my four kids that's old enough to hunt mason and mccoy are definitely the most passionate about it I've got a son named Meyer who likes it, but he's not just enthralled with it. Matter of fact, he loves to go to the hunting shows with me probably more than he likes to hunt. And I got a little girl, Addie. She just turned 10. She got her turkeys, got her deer, and she's just a little old sassy little girl. I don't know how much, I can't tell how much she loves to hunt or she just wants to go out there and get in her camouflage and bebop around the woods. But, um, and ironically, um, it's funny. My wife loves to hunt. It's it's a really weird deal because my son, my oldest son, is on the high school bass fishing team right now. Okay, and he would rather fish than hunt. And I and I wonder sometimes. I you know I think because it, it's almost like you know I, I I'm so I hunt so hard and I'm pulled so many different directions at these hunting shows. And you know whether people call me Michael Waddell, Realtree Road Trips, or the Bone or whatever. I think there's so much of a weird shadow. Even though I tried my best not to, you know, I, I don't claim to be this great hunter. I just love to hunt, and my living comes from it. I think my kids, sometimes, at least Mason, he gravitated to the fishing because it's all his. I'm not. Daddy is not an expert right. bass fisherman. I mean, I, I'm am a catfish and bluegill. I, I like to catch my stuff and re- release them back in Lake Crisco. You know what I mean? I'm I'm, I'm I, I eat fish. I don't <laughs> turn them loose, and so. <laughs> Bass fishing for Mason, I think, is something that is his. And you know what, Dan Proud, just a couple of weeks ago, my boy and um, his high school fishing partner, they won the Georgia State Championship. And there was over 120 boats out there. And so that was all him. Daddy couldn't buy that trophy farm. I couldn't do anything about it. They had the, 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 the weight that won the tournament. And so that was big for him. And I was so proud that he was able to take something that that still come from the family, the hunting and fishing family, but he took that to a ne- to the next level of passion and, and 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 won with it and so yeah, I would say they all like to to hunt, but I definitely you know they, they all like it and 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 I would say Mason McCoy would probably loved it probably more than the other two
0: gotcha did it was it something that came natural? for them? Or, you know, obviously you have to do your job and expose them to it. Um, or was there any, was there any type of scenario where they, you know, they were kind of standoffish at first and then you like, get in the, get in the blind or come on, let's yeah. go. Or did you ease them into it? I just kind of eased them into it. You know, you, you, would, you, would, you would assume that every baseball,
1: you know, players, you know, kid is going to play baseball and a lot of times that's the case and you're assume that if you're a hunter that your kids are going to hunt obviously there's a lot of kids you can get into and so i just basically just always made it available and i'm telling like hey if y'all ever ready to go hunting now mason being he was my first kid i would say i forced it on him i mean he was four years old and i'm trying to cut down 20 gauge and put it in his hands to kill a turkey he couldn't <laughs> even hold up. I mean, he couldn't hold up a stick he was still crapping in his diaper and i'm trying to get him to a gun so i definitely pushed him i mean because I wanted to see my boy get something. My other kids, I let it come to them. I was like, y'all want to go? You want to go? And they all came to me like, Dad, we're ready. And, and, I, and I found through that that you, you can get a kid out there in Georgia pretty much. They can come right off breast milk and go hunting. I mean, there's no, you know how you grew up in Alabama and Georgia, been around those states a lot. I mean, there's no, like, age limit, which I love. And I think sometimes it's easy to get them out there too early. And I found that around that 9 or 10 years old age is when a kid, Especially a boy, I don't. Lord, I'll get thrown a rock at being a being being a sexist here. But the the, the boys at nine or ten develop usually enough strength that they can kind of handle a lighter twenty gauge or a lighter gun for the, the the integrity of it, not necessarily the recoil, but being able to handle it where they can hold it as much. And I found that around eleven years old, the, the girls do better. That doesn't mean you can't do that before that, but I would say my kids. My the youngest I had one of my kids be successful. He was six years old, and that was McCoy. Uh, Mason was also six and seven when he got his first deer in turkey. My little girl shot a turkey and a deer when she was eight, and so uh, they all love it. Meyer also was around at seven years age, um, but but they all came to me and asked me, and now I don't even I don't even tell them about the hunt i ask them if they want to go and if they want to go they don't and then sometimes i say no dad we just want to do this tomorrow can we go to a movie can we do this or we want to go camping and, and go build a pond down or you know go dam up the creek and so that's what i do and so at least i've led them to it and and so when they want to go i take them and when they don't want to go i don't and then kind of getting back to practice what i preach i want them to have fun doing it i don't want them to necessarily feel like they got to do it because it makes dad happy i want them to do it because it's something they want to do
0: gotcha So, you know, you know, whether it's the hunting industry or being a steward of hunting, when, when it's all said and done and, you know, whether you hang up your boots from the TV world or, you know, you pass on from this life, what do you want when, when people say Michael Waddell, what do you want people to, to know and understand more about you?
1: Yeah, that's, that's a, uh, That's a pretty deep question, and, I, I, you know, it's hard to say, but overall, Dan, I, I really hope from a standpoint, if there's a legacy to be left to where Michael Waddell maybe did something or impacted or left something, I really just hope they could say he passionately loved hunting. He sincerely did his best to promote it. He tried to think outside the box, and he wasn't afraid of any ridicule to represent what he thought was truly the the real culture of what this hunting means to the high percentage of us who have a hunting and fishing license and uh I I I I hope that people can realize that with me that I sincerely love people I want people to be successful um I, I don't want them to fail whether it's in hunting turkeys, help deer, or anything, or life in general. I truly want people to find joy and, and to be successful and to find what it is they're good at and to, to not make excuses for it and to just get out there and do it and get it done. And so I, I hopefully, when it's all said and done, somebody can say, you know, Michael made a difference. You know, and he, here's what it is. I don't know what it might be, but Michael did make a difference in this industry by doing these things that he passionately believed in. And and I think that would be the biggest legacy that I think I could leave. Um, And and the last thing I'd ever want to be accused of is somebody that was seeking fame or trying to be a poser or trying to be somebody who just signed hats at a hunting show. Um, To me, that means nothing to me. I I, I respect the fact that somebody might want want me to sign their hats. I respect that. I'm not saying – that that's dumb. I, I definitely respect it. To me, that's a very humbling experience. But in the end, I want to make a difference. I want to help sell more hunting licenses. I want people to understand that hunting kept me off drugs. Hunting kept me out of a lot of trouble. Hunting keeps me with my family, my dad. It keeps me bonded with my kid, my wife. I mean, you know, I've cried with my dad on a mountain. You know, I've, I've talked with him turkey hunting on opening day about everything we went through with my mother it has been something that is so, so far beyond just shooting an animal. And uh, and there's not anybody out there that respects God's renewable resources more than us true hunters who want to put our tags on these animals. That sounds so strange to somebody who don't hunt, but to you and to so many of the listeners out there, they know exactly what I'm talking about. We sincerely love these creatures that we are hunting down, that we're putting on our table. We understand that these wild animals have the advantage. We also understand that they need us to help protect them, to balance them at times, and to make sure that we nurture and protect their environment, their habitat. And so there's such a deep, detailed connection to everything that we do as hunters. And I hope somehow, when it's all said and done, people can say, well, Michael Whitehill helped people understand that messaging. And... uh, if they never remember anything I've ever shot, that don't bother me. You know, I, if somebody says, well, you know, I don't even know if Michael killed a big deer. To me, that's even a bigger compliment to, to what we've accomplished. So in the end, I just hope people can say I made a difference in some sort of way to this industry and to this culture that we call hunting, because I think that we're in a fight. I think we're in an environment right now, Dan, that we're we have so much of the liberal America pushing down on us that they basically say we're going to choose to hate you, never even attempt to understand your culture, that you like to shoot animals or have a pistol or have the right to your second amendment. We're going to continue to judge you and to hate you, but we're going to force you to accept us no matter what it is. And if we decide that we want our son to pee beside your daughter in a public restaurant, you just want to get over it. Right. And so when it gets down to it, We're in a fight, and I think it slipped up on us. And as hardworking conservative people, we let things slide away because we mind our own freaking business. Dan, Dan, you're worried about your family. You're not worried about everybody else's. I'm worried about my wife in there sitting in the living room during this tornado watching my young son. I'm worried about that. I'm not worried about everything else. It doesn't mean that I'm not worried about everybody else, but I'm worried about what is happening, and I'm trying my best to sweep around my own front steps. And so... When it gets down to it, for me, where I'm at right now, is so. I think there's so much more I can try to do, more than just hunt or even our bone collector brand. It's about a culture that we have to make no excuses for in hunting and fishing and that we are just trying to say we're an asset to America. We're hardworking people that enjoy everything the good Lord gave us. We still fear God. We still understand that it's our responsibility to have dominion over these wildlife Uh, over these fisheries and we to take care of it and there's nothing wrong with hunting and fishing and enjoying that and putting it on our table to eat with our family and our friends so uh, that's a really broad stroke but in that there's a message that i hope people understand that there's a lot of sincerity when it comes from me and uh and i've been blessed thus far to to do my best to represent what i thought was right about our culture
0: amen Mr. Michael Waddell, thank you very much for taking time out of your day to to come on the podcast and uh, share some stories and words of wisdom with us.
1: Well, I appreciate it, Dan. Well, you keep fighting good fight and good luck all the rest of the turkey season
0: and going into fall, buddy. And there you have it, another Monday podcast in the books. Hopefully you guys enjoyed today's conversation with Michael Waddell. Huge shout-out to Michael for coming on the podcast and be uh, be essing with us for a little bit. I really appreciate your time, buddy. Also, thanks to each and every one of you who has tuned in to this podcast, whether this is your very first time or you've been a religious follower of it since uh, day one. Appreciate it all. Uh, huge shout out to the the partners of this podcast: Deer Lab, Ripcord, Wasp. Exodus, Ozonics, and Gearhead Archery. Thank you very much for uh, your support. And uh, because of you guys, this podcast continues to grow and rock and roll. And uh, other than that, guys, be sure to go check out the Nine Finger Chronicles on Instagram, uh, Nine Finger Chronicles on Twitter, and Nine Finger Chronicles on Facebook, and, uh, you know, if you get the opportunity and like the podcast, go to iTunes and uh, leave a review. Other than that, guys, thanks again for tuning in today. Thank you for listening. And if you are in a tree stand, I mean, it's getting to that time of year where uh, we got to start thinking about hanging some tree stands, wear your damn safety harness. Have a good week.